Welcome to The Daily Bite with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. Today we continue our view of the restoration of God's people in the book of Ezekiel from chapter 43. Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east, and behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. And the vision I saw was just like the vision that I had seen when he came to destroy the city, and just like the vision that I had seen by the Kabar Canal, and I fell on my face. As the glory of Yahweh entered the temple by the gate facing east, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of Yahweh filled the temple. While the man was standing beside me, I heard one speaking to me out of the temple, and he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne, and the place of the soles of my feet, where I dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. And the house of Israel shall no more defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings by their whoring and by their dead bodies of their kings at their high places. By setting their threshold by my threshold and their doorpost beside my doorpost with only a wall between me and them. They have defiled my holy name by their abominations that they have committed, so I have consumed them in my anger. Now let them put away their whoring and the dead bodies of their kings far from me, and I will dwell in their midst forever. As for you, son of man, describe to the house of Israel the temple, that they may be ashamed of their iniquities and they shall measure the plan. And if they are ashamed of all that they have done, make known to them the design of the temple, its arrangement, its exits, and its entrances, that is, its whole design, and make known to them as well all its statutes, and its whole design, and all its laws, and write it down in their sight, so that they may observe all its laws, and all its statutes, and carry them out. This is the law of the temple. The whole territory on the top of the mountain all around shall be most holy. Behold, this is the law of the temple. These are the measurements of the altar by cubits, the cubit being a cubit and a hand breadth. Its base shall be one cubit high and one cubit broad, with a rim of one span around its edge. And this shall be the height of the altar, from the base on the ground to the lower edge two cubits with a breadth of one cubit, and from the smaller ledge to the larger ledge four cubits with a breadth of one cubit, and the altar hearth four cubits, and from the altar hearth projecting upward four horns. The altar hearth shall be square, twelve cubits long by twelve broad. The ledge also shall be square, fourteen cubits long by fourteen broad, with a rim around it half a cubit broad, and its base one cubit all around. The steps of the altar shall face east, and he said to me, Son of man, thus says the Lord Yahweh, These are the ordinances for the altar. On the day when it is erected for offering burnt offerings upon it, and for throwing blood against it, you shall give to the Levitical priests of the family of Zadok, who draw near to me to minister to me, declares the Lord Yahweh, a bull from the herd for a sin offering. And you shall take some of its blood and put it on the four horns of the altar and on the four horns, four corners of the ledge and upon the rim all around. Thus you shall purify the altar, and make atonement for it. You shall also take the bull of the sin offering, and it shall be burned in the appointed place belonging to the temple, outside the sacred area. And on the second day you shall offer a male goat without blemish for a sin offering, and the altar shall be purified as it was purified with the bull. When you have finished purifying it, you shall offer a bull from the herd without blemish, and a ram from the flock without blemish, 
you shall present them before Yahweh, and the priest shall sprinkle salt on them, and offer them up as a burnt offering to Yahweh. For seven days you shall provide daily a male goat for a sin offering, also a bull from the herd and a ram from the flock, without blemish, shall be provided. Seven days shall they make atonement for the altar, and cleanse it, and so consecrate it. And when they have completed these days, then from the eighth day onward the priest shall offer on the altar your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, and I will accept you, declares the Lord Yahweh. This is the word of the Lord. Now again, just as a quick recap, chapters 40 through 48 speak of God restoring the people of Israel, and ultimately this temple idea is a prophetic vision of Jesus. So what are we seeing in today's chapter to help us see that? That's our goal to look at. Now, we start the te- text with, He led me to the gate. That's still that same figure from back in chapter 40, verse 3, uh, the man that appears as bronze, whether, that, again, that's an angel or if it's the pre-incarnate Christ. We don't know for sure, but that's who's doing this this whole way through. He's been there with Ezekiel. And he takes him to the gate that faces east. And east is going to come prominently there in verses 1 and 2, right? The glory of Yahweh came from the east. When God first had the Israelites build the tabernacle, when they were to set the tabernacle up, that was God's dwelling place before the temple was built, when they were wandering for 40 years, they erected it facing east, right? And and so here we have this idea again. Many churches today are actually built in the same manner. They face east. So why is that? What is the the Christian tradition with east here? There's a few things. Uh, For us, we could look geographically at the idea that the Garden of Eden that the Lord made first, that first paradise, was located to the east of us. Um, Genesis uses that language. That's a possibility um, in the same way that we would think of the cross as being east of us. But probably more prominent is the connection to the rising of the sun. And you think of the rising of the sun, S-U-N, as God gives us a new day. And so we have like a text from the book of Jeremiah talking about how God's mercies are new every morning. It's a great connection there. But you also have not just S-U-N, right, the, the sun that rises to provide light and life to this creation. You have the S-O-N, the sun who rises to provide light and life to his creation. And so that neat little wordplay there is, is part of this, right? That Jesus, the son of God, rose from the dead. And so the, the connection to the sun rising in the east is a part of that conversation, too, for us. And in English, it's a very nice little word pairing that we can make. Then you have the sound of God in the, I almost said the garden, right? Uh, striking back to Genesis 3. But instead here, it's the sound of many waters as his glory is shown upon the earth. Now, we saw that same kind of phrasing back in chapter 1, verse 24, the vision that Ezekiel had at the start of this book. But when we see this now, the that God's glory shone, shines upon the earth. Maybe that's a question to discuss with your children. When did God's glory shine on the earth? Or when will God's glory shine on the earth? 
And having just spoken about Christ rising from the dead, you know, that's a good spot to go with this idea that his glory is showing uh, to the, the crucifixion and the resurrection. And to the last day would be the other place to go with that when all of the earth will know his glory. So Ezekiel compares this to his previous visions that he's seen of God um, from back in the first several chapters of the book. He had the early one in those first couple chapters, and then he had another one around chapters 8 through 11. That's the reference point here. And he falls on his face in worship, right? A humility posture and a, a, a thing of worship. Yahweh, the glory of Yahweh, enters into the temple. And it fills the temple right there in verse 4 and 5. And this is true of what happened at the tabernacle. It's true of what has happened at the first temple that Solomon built, that the glory of Yahweh filled those places. He made them his dwelling place. And we're going to pick up on that in the next paragraph. Real quick, though, verse 5, the reminder that this is still a vision. That's been the language of Ezekiel's visions so far. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me somewhere. So, as we look then to the next paragraph, what does it mean that God is dwelling in this temple? Well, you see, this is the place of my throne. That's a reference to the Old Testament Ark, right? The Ark of the Covenant was God's throne in the tabernacle and then the temple. The place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. And that's a reminder of what the purpose of the temple was. The place where God would dwell with his people, where he would rule over them as their king. So, you got a couple of things here to point you to Jesus and to point your children to Jesus. Right? Uh, the question you could ask, what, what name of Jesus means God with us? As we see this idea that he's with us. And that would be that name, Emmanuel. So you can talk about the promise of God, that he will be with us. And that's what we see here. The other way you could phrase this question or talk about it is we see God saying he's going to dwell with us. When did God dwell with us? How does God dwell with us today? And he does that through Jesus Christ, his son. So the temple is the, well, the temple is Jesus. And that's the point we've been making the last few days here. And we're going to continue to make the next few days as well. They have defiled God's holy name. And so their abominations, we see that in verse 8. He has consumed them in his anger. But now we have a conversation about repentance. Let them put it away. And he will dwell with them forever. We know when we confess our sins before God, he forgives us in Jesus' name. And we know that as repentant people of God, we get to dwell with him forever in the paradise he's preparing for us. So as you get to the next paragraph, actually the rest of the text today, this is as close as you probably get in this section, chapters 40 to 48, of it sounding like they are actually supposed to build this thing rather than it being a prophetic vision. Um, And so let's take a look at that. First, God doesn't actually say to build it in verses 10 through 12. Make known to them the design. Make known to them all of its statutes and its laws. So it's not a command to build, but rather making known to them the design of this is pointing out to them the importance of the temple, of God dwelling with them, of them repenting of their sins, of them taking all of this seriously rather than continuing to think that they can just worship their idols over on the one hand and say that they love God on the other, which has failed them time and time again before. 
So see those things. They are to live as people of God. They are to live as they are to live as though they are people among whom God actually dwells. And again, he does that for us in Jesus. And you'll note that, right, in verse 12, this is the law of the temple. The whole territory on the top of the mountain shall be most holy. Not just a building, the whole territory. And that might point us to paradise right there. Now, note the language of verse 11. Well, 10 and 11. Describe to the house of Israel the temple that they may be ashamed of their iniquities and they shall measure the plan. So first, point to them point them to their sin. Then, verse 11, if they are ashamed of all that they have done, so if they're repentant, make known to them the design of the temple. You see the law and the gospel happening there? The way that we uh, typically go about sharing faith with others is they can't know uh, the benefit, the value of a Savior if they don't realize they need saving. So the Lutheran style of, of sharing faith has tended to to be very much like the catechism is structured. Luther structures his catechism first with the law, the Ten Commandments, and then everything after that is gospel about how God provides for us. So we do that too as we seek to reach out to those who are lost. They can't know the goodness of Jesus if they think that they're okay, if they don't think there's anything wrong with how they're living or what their hope is for this life. They have to, well, I won't say have to. The Spirit can work as the Spirit pleases, and he works through his word. It does not return to him empty. But to hear that they are sinners, to be shown how they have rebelled against God, to be shown how their ways lead to destruction and nothing better, that then does open up the opportunity for them to hear of Christ. And that's the picture we get here, right? Um, So if they repent, show them their iniquities. If they repent, show them the temple. Show them Jesus. All right, that brings us to the last section today of our text. We'll cover this one quickly. This is about the altar. So some of the typical temple furniture is pictured in chapters 40 to 48, like the altar. Some of it is not, like the golden lampstand that we've talked about before as well. So don't know why that is, to be quite honest with you. Not sure. But here we have the altar. Now the purpose of the altar was the place of sacrifice. It is the place where you would bring animals to the priest. The priest would take the animal on the altar. He'd kill the animal. Uh, The blood would be shed. Uh, They had to do certain things with different animals. We won't get into all that. They burn the offering there. They take the blood. They put some of it on the sides of the altar. Depending on the type of sacrifice, they do different things with that too. So there's a lot that goes into that Old Testament sacrificial system. So note that as we're talking about the New Testament here, as we're talking about the temple that is Jesus, the idea of sacrifice is brought back up. The idea of the Old Testament sacrificial system in which God cared about forgiving the sins of his people, taking away the guilt of their sin. Now in this new temple that is Jesus, our sin, our guilt is still going to be taken away. But it's going to be done in a different way. We'll come back to that in just a moment. You'll notice the eighth day concept here. So seven days they they are to do this. On the eighth day, 
um, and onward it will be a place for burnt offerings and peace offerings. And this is a really, I I don't know, I think you could pair this up with Holy Week pretty well. The, the, the idea of Holy Week being a week long, right? Seven days, and then on the eighth day he rises from the dead. So the preparation of Christ for his death, his burial, and being buried in the tomb, um, and then on the eighth day rising again. And now we live in that eighth day where Christ is risen from the dead and we can go to him with our sins and he does forgive us and he does offer us peace as he reconciles us to the Father in heaven. I think that's a connection we might make here um, as well. So now the question you can ask your children about this altar, why don't we do this today? I mean, many of your churches have an altar in them, so why don't we bring our bull and our ox and our lamb or a pigeon or a turtle dove? Why don't we bring these animals in and sacrifice them? Why is Sunday morning not a bloody mess? Because of Jesus, whose sacrifice once and for all takes away all of our sins. And that's a beautiful gift that the Lord has given. This is why in your church, the cross hangs above the altar. Because those Old Testament sacrifices mattered. They really were worth something, but they weren't enough. The cross of Christ is. It trumps. It, it is better than. It hangs above. It sits above the altar because Christ's death takes away all of our sins. We no longer have to make offerings to the Lord in order to receive that forgiveness. He has won it for us, and he freely gives it to us whenever we come before his throne. And so we rejoice in our text today.